Well, good morning, folks. How are you? Listen, uh, I believe there was this sheet passed out. I'd like to reference it just a little bit. Uh, I'd like our focus this morning to be on the, the life of Jesus. And we talked a little bit in Sunday school about uh, the fact that this is real history. Uh, and and uh, the specific focus uh, of this chart is the Passion Week. And I want to take us just in the time we have this morning and then later this afternoon to uh, a couple events from the Passion Week. Let me talk about it for just a minute here. The... Uh, why do we call, of course, this is the, in, in the English-speaking world, we have taken to referring to the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord as his passion. Why is that? You know, why, why do we, it seems kind of strange, why do we call that his passion? Pretty universally, our passion plays and so on. Well, I'll answer my own question, thank you. I think it is probably because of the way uh, the King James translated uh, Luke's testimony in uh, Dr. Luke's testimony at the beginning of his second volume, Acts, when he says that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion. Remember that? After his passion by many infallible proofs. And it's a Greek word that means an outpouring of, of angst and emotion and suffering and so on. So at any rate, we're thinking about his passion week. Now I mentioned this morning, I've got to go quickly here, but I mentioned this morning that the four Gospels, each one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is deliberately selective. They, none of them is or claims to be an exhaustive telling. They have to select material and so on. But it's interesting that about two-fifths, about 40% of each of the four Gospels is given over to the last week of Jesus' life. Now let me say real quickly, it's an eight-day week, praise God, because it starts with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday on Sunday, and, of course, concludes eight days later on the yonder Sunday when Jesus walks alive from the tomb. But I go back to it. About 40% about of each of the four Gospels is given to, to this one week in Jesus' life, which there are a couple of implications. That Number one, clearly it's something God wants us to know, right? We have a lot of material, and we can reconstruct the last week of Jesus' life with a specificity and a detail that we can't really bring to the rest of because because we don't have that kind of day by day. We have almost hour by hour narrative of the last week of Jesus' life. So, number one, it's certainly something that God wants us to understand. And that's my second point is we have, we have the capacity to do it because we have so much detail. Now, you have two charts here. One uh, is a kind of a table chart, and I've just listed... The events, now listen, let me say this. I do not have time to deal with it. I would love to deal with it. But there are some disagreements among good Bible-believing students and so on about some of the details. Obviously, I got the microphone, so I'm in charge here. You know, I get to make the chart, for heaven's sake. I'm, I, we don't have time to talk about the details. This is the very, very standard chronology, which I would say, and by the way, it is interesting, that 93. 4% of all statistics are made up on the spot, including that one right there. But I was going to say, I think, I think the great majority of, of, of uh, uh, I was going to say 95%, I'd have made that up. But I, most, this is what everybody holds. This, this is the standard position. There are, there are those who take umbrage with it at some point, and, and I'd be happy to talk about it. But you have this chart. Now listen. 
On the back side, I don't know which is the front side, but the other side, I give you the same material, but I, I, I give you an outline that I like to use, and I'm going to walk you through it very quickly. And because uh, Sunday, do you see it at the top there, is a day of messianic presentation. Now listen, folks. For about three and a half years, beginning with his baptism, which is, by the way, time out, not the beginning of his public ministry. I always say the baptism is not the first act of his public life, it's the last uh, act of his private life. But from, it's about three and a half years from Jesus' baptism until the time he ascends to the Father. Throughout that time, he had been blanketing, saturating, permeating the country with his claims, the people, with his claims to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and with miraculous proof of his right to make those claims. Jesus had about seven months before his crucifixion. Jesus had taken his 12 apostles to a region, not to the place, but to a region called Caesarea Philippi. This is Matthew 16. And he contrived, it took him about four months to finally get alone with his disciples. He tried several uh, strategies and they didn't work and so finally because he was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove he made his way clear up to the foothill of Mount Hermon and to a region called Caesarea Philippi which is so onerous and so Roman and so wicked that he knew nobody would follow him there but it's a mountainside a literal mountainside and so he had found a place on the mountainside at the foot of Mount Hermon and there for the very first time he told his disciples he was going to die it's so important we think of Jesus as coming to die, amen and amen. But understand this, for the first almost three years of that three and a half year period, he never spoke about dying. And it was only within about six or seven months of his death that he told his disciples for the first time he was going to die. And how did they react, by the way? Did they say, of course, we got Isaiah 53, we wondered when you'd start talking about it. No. You know, the Bible says that after Matthew 16, 21 says this, after this, Jesus began to teach his disciples uh, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things with the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, rise again. And the next verse says that Peter took him, and a lot of translations have took him aside, like, you know, I need to talk about that. I think he took him like this, and said, far be it from thee. And it's important to understand as you come to the Passion Week narrative in the Gospels, it's important to understand that Jesus' apostles were totally clueless. Oh, I'd love to run with this. It's such a huge dynamic of this week. But anyway, they, they, they fully expect that the kingdom is soon to be established. And by the way, other than the fact that Jesus had told them again and again he was going to die and they refused to believe it, but on the other hand, Given the events, I mean, think about it. Sunday is the triumphal entry. Now, imagine you're one of those 12 apostles. And for weeks now, Jesus has been talking about dying. You don't understand it. You don't want to hear it. It makes you mad. It makes you anxious. But now, on a Sunday morning, Jesus is on the backside of the Mount of Olives and he tells his disciples, with his disciples, at a place called Bethany, and he tells his disciples, go get that donkey, we get a donkey, and now you ride over the crest. Now, you've got to understand, you're coming up the eastern side, the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, behind you is Jericho and the Dead Sea, 
but you're coming up that eastern slope and you're going to crest the hill and there is Jerusalem spread at your feet. So now you're one of the apostles and it's Passover and the city is swollen with literally hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions depending on which historian you want to believe. But at any rate, it's, and, and, and you're one of those disciples and, and by the way, Jesus is this by this time. You've got to take my word for it, John 11, 53 and 57. Jesus is a fugitive. The most powerful men in the nation of Israel are determined to put him to death, and they have, John eleven fifty seven. 57, he put out notices. There were wanted posters, folks. Maybe they weren't posters, but the name Jesus of Nazareth was scribbled on this and that wall with, a, with, and, and with an announcement that he was to be arrested. That's what John eleven fifty seven 57 says. You're one of the apostles. Jesus says, go get the donkey. He gets on the donkey, you ride with him. And I always think maybe as you start to crest the hill, you can hear all the commotion. On the other side of the hill, you think, oh, this could be trouble. Oh, who knows? Maybe the soldiers there are waiting to arrest us, you know. But now you crest the hill, and here are tens and scores of thousands of Jewish people who are there to welcome Jesus as king, and they are throwing down their garments, and they are singing the Hosanna uh, the, uh, of, of Psalm 118, by the way, let me just tell you something. We heard, we enjoyed. There, there is a verse in Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is the psalm of messianic inauguration. That's the psalm that God gave Israel to teach them how to receive their Messiah. And there is a verse from that psalm that everybody in this room knows by heart, I swear, and most of you recited it in your mind within the last hour. What's that verse? What is it? This is the day. Now, you know, I love that verse, and I think it's perfectly wonderful to start the day with that. But let me add another dimension to that verse. Because that verse, the psalmist is not talking about just any day. He is talking specifically about the day when Messiah would finally appear. He is talking about the day that we were taught to anticipate back there in the Garden of Eden when we were first promised in the person of Adam and Eve that God was going to raise up a seed of woman who would undo the curse of sin. And all through that history, we have been taught to wait for the day of Messiah's appearance. And that's the point of the verse. This is the day which what? Only God could make that happen. And therefore, we will rejoice. You remember that on the day of the triumphal entry, some came and tried to get his, Jesus' disciples to stop singing. And Jesus said, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because this is the long-awaited day which only God can make, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, that's the day of the triumphal entry. Jesus made that happen. I'd love to walk you through it. It wasn't accidental. He had orchestrated that day. But the whole city rises up. And I go back to my point. You're one of the apostles, and Jesus has been talking for months about dying, but now the whole city welcomes him as king. You're thinking, this is a good, I don't know what that dying talk is, but this is a good thing. We are on a roll here. So Sunday is a day of messianic presentation. i got to be quick. I asked the question, given Sunday, why Friday? Given the fact that on Sunday Israel is welcoming the, 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 the Jewish people are throwing down their garments. That's how you go back to 1 uh, 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 Kings, uh, no, 2 Kings about chapter 8, 
when Jehu is made king by one of the sons of the prophets. And as soon as Jehu, Jehu is a general in the army of the north, but as soon as he's told he's going to be the king, all of his soldiers take their garments off and throw up their feet as he rides across. That's how you welcome a king, for heaven's sake. And that's exactly what's going on there on, on, on that, that Sunday. And you need to understand this, that that is the single most dramatic and official presentation by Jesus of Nazareth to Israel as their Messiah Savior. That's what's going on. This is the day which the Lord has made. But I ask the question, given Sunday, why Friday? They, they accept him on, uh, on Sunday as king. Why on Friday are, there, are they calling for his, his crucifixion? The answer is Monday and Tuesday. And, the, and I call their Monday and Tuesday days of messianic proclamation. Oh, so much to talk about here, but I just say this. That for those two days, Jesus on Monday morning returned to the city of Beth, uh, from Bethany. He is wise as a serpent. He's a fugitive. But it's so fascinating to track his steps and see how careful and, 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 and uh, he just, he's being so very, very careful. But at any rate, and, and, and strategic, wise. But at any rate, Jesus comes back into the city of Jerusalem on Monday morning and cleanses the temple for a second time, uh, 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 galvanizes the hatred of the, the Sadducees who run the temple with the hatred of the Pharisees who run the, the, the synagogues. And, uh, but, but then for two days he possesses the temple and he makes the point, listen, it would take me so long to actually make this make sense to you, but trust me, Jesus was a genius at putting what seemed to be a willingness to accept him to the test. And he would put his finger on the most tender nerve in your spiritual body. And he would say, that's what you got to surrender. In other words, he would speak hard words, hard words in the sense that it costs you something, but that's what he demanded. Not because he's a hard taskmaster, but he wants to test your willingness to actually give your allegiance to him as your Savior King. So when a rich young ruler said, what must I do? He said, you sell everything. Now, is that, is that really how you get into heaven for heaven's sakes? No, no. But this man insisted he was willing to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, all right, this is the point, which, oh, I could go on and on. But Jesus, in the first century, had the most remarkable foil, if you know what I mean. And that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were universally revered and universally feared. They were revered because they were full-time law keepers. And they taught the nation that that's how you please God and get into the kingdom. The, the Pharisees loved to talk about the grace of God. You know what they meant by the grace of God? Explicitly, God was so gracious. And we are dependent upon the grace of God. He is so gracious that he gave us the law. And now all we have to do is keep the law, and we'll get into the kingdom. And the Pharisees, they didn't work. They didn't have jobs. They were law keepers. That's what they did morning to night. They kept the law. And the common man had the sense that they were rather doing it on the behalf of the nation, and so the, they, were, they were regarded as, as the most spiritual men in the whole culture, and so on. They loved and revered the Pharisees. But if you made a Pharisee mad, he could put you apo synagogue. You recognize that? Out 
of the synagogue. Remember John chapter 9, man born blind? If you don't confess you were never blind, we'll put you out of the... Now, you know what? Perish the thought. You don't want to be getting put out of Christian fellowship, church, shame on you. But getting put out of the synagogue was a thing of a different order because you were probably not going to be able to find work. Your whole life was a function. That's where you went to find work, to find gossip, to find spouse for your kids. Every, your whole life was a function of that synagogue. It wasn't just a church. It wasn't just a gathering. It was where your life was. And if you got put out of that synagogue, you're liable to have to move to another village, for heaven's sake. So the Pharisees, so what happens? I'm back to, you say, you're wandering book when I am. Sunday, day of messianic presentation, they're throwing their garments down saying, be our king. Monday and Tuesday, well, I'll finish it. Friday, they're saying, crucify him. What happened? Given Sunday, why Friday, Monday, and Tuesday? Because on Monday and Tuesday, and Jesus does this again and again. Jesus, the last discourse of Jesus, it happens on Tuesday afternoon, is in Matthew 23, where Jesus calls down a series of the most scathing woes on the Pharisees. Remember this? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you compass land and sea to make one disciple. And when you've made him your disciple, he is twofold more the son of hell than he was in the first place. Remember this? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You make the outside of the cup clean, but the inside is filthy. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Every single time, that's what he says. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Were the Sadducees crooks? Yeah. But did he, did he call down? A, no, he never mentioned them. Why? Because the people were not interested in being like the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they hated the Sadducees. But they were interested in being like the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, if you insist on following the Pharisees' gospel of righteousness through the law, you're lost. You have to choose between me and them. And so he, again and again, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like so many whited sepulchers. That's so fascinating because in that culture, in Jewish culture, because of Leviticus, if you had any contact with a human dead body or with a tomb, you just physically brushed up against it, you were rendered impure and you couldn't go to the temple for X number of days and you had to bring a sacrifice to, to, to establish your purity. Well, that was a problem because the Jews normally did not bury in a cemetery. They just, somewhere in their property, they had a cave, they dug a cave and they made that their family tomb and maybe nobody had died for three or four years and it's kind of gotten all covered with brush and now you're on your way up to Jerusalem for the, for the, for the, for the, for the Passover. You're just a traveler and you decide to take a rest and you're leaning up against that tomb and somebody comes and says, hey, I tell you this, but you're leaning up against granddaddy's tomb, you're in trouble now. So the rabbis had insisted that at Passover season, everybody go out, everybody throughout the land and just take some cheap white lye and splash it all over the door of the tomb so people would know. You see the point? So you're like so many whited sepulchers. You might look nice on the outside, people just brush up against you and they become a stench in God's nostrils. All throughout the Bible, when you read about unclean, you know, and impure, think of it. It means you stink. And you don't like having people around you stink. Neither does God. And if you're unclean, you stink. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you're like so many whited sepulchers. You might look good. You might glisten the sun. 
But in fact, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, the point is this. Given Sunday, why Friday? And the answer is Monday and Tuesday. Because on Monday and Tuesday, and I tell people, if I had one free ride on your newly invented time machine, and you gave me a two-day limit, I'd dial up Monday and Tuesday. These are the most fascinating, dramatic, uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Spend time with them. But Sunday, I like to think of as a day of messianic presentation. Given Sunday, why Friday? Because Monday and Tuesday, I like to think of as two days that go together of messianic proclamation because on those two days, Jesus took possession of the temple. He never, ever, in his public ministry, in his life, ever behaved as messianically as on those two days. The Bible says, Malachi 3.1, that the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, will come suddenly to his temple. Jesus went to that marvelous second temple reconstructed by Herod, took possession of it. Mark says that Jesus would not so much as allow a man to carry a vessel through the temple. He took charge of the temple. The Sadducees, of course, who owned the temple, were horrified. And then, as I say, uh, he took on all comers. He put them to silence and open debate. And then, uh, because he was so wise as a serpent, but then as he left the temple that afternoon, he pronounced those scathing woes upon the Pharisees. What is he doing? He's saying to that city, you choose. Look, look, real quick, time out, just to validate that. We have this before in Jesus' life. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7? You know, I always tell people that if you want to understand either Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, or Matthew 23, Jesus' denunciation of the Pharisees, picture Jesus pointing. They're in the crowd. And I and let me take you to the Sermon on the Mount real quickly. Early in Jesus' Galilean ministry, thousands of people have gathered because he's a healer and there are people in that crowd that afternoon. I'm in Matthew 5 all of a sudden, Luke 6. But there are people in that crowd, this is some years earlier in Jesus' ministry, that day who I think had, had, had come with crutches and had just broken those crutches over their knees. There are people who had, had felt the contours of their families and loved ones face all of their lives, and for the first time that day they had looked upon the people they loved. There were people who had good reason to worship this Jesus of Nazareth, but they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus goes up on a hillside, and this is what he says. Now, I haven't got time, but... Matthew 5, the whole key, and most of will acknowledge this, the key to the, to the sermon, Matthew 5, 20, uh, 5 to 7, is Matthew 5, 20, where Jesus says, uh, you can't imagine what fighting words these are. And again, before I quote the verse, let me say, you've got thousands of people spread out beneath Jesus' feet. He's up on a hillside where he can be heard. I can take you to that hillside, I think. But at any rate, the point is, he looks out on these people, and over here in the corner, there's this little gaggle of, of Pharisees. They're tracking them everywhere. Their blue is brighter, their fringe is longer, their turban is, is, is more colorful, and so on. So you can see a Pharisee a mile away. And here they are, gaggle, little gaggle. And that's why I'm going to say, picture Jesus pointing. Because in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never glimpse the kingdom of God. You know, one of, the, one of the sobriquets or nicknames that the Pharisees loved to use of one another was gatekeeper. They would say, well, good morning, fellow gatekeeper. 
And they said that because they were so convinced not only were they, they knew the law so well and they kept the law so punctiliously that not only were they certain to get into the kingdom, but God was going to allow them to decide who else got in because they knew the law so well. And, and, and the people believed this, the people, and, and for Jesus to stand there on that day and say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribe, you're never going to glimpse. And then the whole sermon is, they say unto you, but you've heard it said by them, picture and pointing, see those guys over there? They've said unto you, but I say unto you. They say, and when he concludes, this is the Sermon on the Mount, how does he conclude it? Picture and pointing. There's a broad way, help yourself, leads to destruction, many go in, there's a narrow way. You can build your house on the sand, help yourself, it's going to crash, or you can build it. Does that make sense to you? We know that Jesus loves to drive men to a decision. No, no, it's more than that. It is that. But he's going to test the willingness of people to follow him by speaking hard words. And one of the ways that he does it most often is, it's me or the Pharisees. And if you do what's right, you're going to pay. They can toss you out of the synagogue. Does that make sense to you? All right, let's go back to the Passion Week. I'm just going to survey it this morning, and then I want to take you to one moment in the Passion Week this afternoon. Sunday, he rides into town. He has orchestrated this. He made it happen. The city welcomes him as king, and we ask ourselves, given Sunday, why Friday? The answer is Monday and Tuesday, because on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus behaves messianically and drives that city to a decision. You know what, folks? You can reduce it to this. And, oh, there is no concept you could ever entertain or consider that's more important than this. It comes down to this. On Sunday, the triumphal entry. You know what that means? I mean, the, what, what I think we can most dramatically and importantly and delightfully take away from that is that Jesus does offer himself as Savior. That's what's going on. He rides into that city in fulfillment of three distinct lines of Old Testament prophecy as the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise that God had ever given. Begin there, Genesis 3, that God is going to provide a deliverer from sin. And Jesus of Nazareth is that one. And so the grand message of the triumphal entry of the day of messianic presentation is that Jesus is that Messiah. He is that sin sacrifice deliverer. Amen and amen? But the message of Monday and Tuesday, what I'm calling days of messianic proclamation, when Jesus says, you choose between me and the Pharisees because you're not going to have it both ways. The grand if the grand message of Sunday is that Jesus is that deliverer who can deliver us from the curse of sin, the message of Monday and Tuesday is simply this. You don't take Jesus on your terms. You take him on his terms. Or you'll not have him. And his terms is, uh, his, ter his basic demand is, you've got to acknowledge there is no other hope. In the garden, oh, I'd love to take you there. I'll do it in a minute briefly. Three times Jesus prays, if there be any other way. If there were another way, don't you think the Father would have allowed it? There is no other way, folks, other than trusting in what he did for us. All right. Sunday, day of messianic presentation. Monday and Tuesday, days of messianic proclamation. 
Wednesday uh, by my lights and the lights of most is a silent day. I'd love to talk to you about it. It was a busy day. We can reconstruct a lot what was going on. But I'll tell you this, and this is huge. This is really important. Luke 22, Matthew 26, Mark 14. It couldn't be more explicit. On Tuesday night, the Sanhedrin, are you familiar with that term? The great council, the body of 70 Jewish aristocrats, some, Jew, uh, some uh, Pharisees, some Sadducee, who uh, about split down the middle, who, uh, uh, who Rome allows to run all things Jewish. So that's Sanhedrin, and they are angry beyond what we can conceive of. They are beside themselves. They, they, they are almost literally insane with anger. The Pharisees have long been angry with Jesus because he's been going up and down the countryside in the synagogues, and they run the synagogues, and they haven't been able to put a stop to him. But now on Monday, Jesus had for a second time cleansed the temple. That belongs to the Sadducees. You know, I always say, can you imagine if the government, just because it chose to, because after all, does it have to have any reason for anything, just issued a decree that, on, uh, that all retail businesses in America had to close the day after Thanksgiving and couldn't open again until January 5th, you pick it. Think that'd be hard on, that's what's happening here. For Jesus to shut down that Sadducean traffic at Passover, this is when they filled their coffers. You just can't say how angry. So on Tuesday night, the Sadducees run the temple, the Pharisees run the synagogue. They are both mad beyond words. And they gather at the home of uh, uh, a real villain by the name of Caiaphas. You know, he had a home, and it's been archaeologically proven, it's not that big a deal, but it, he had a home on a hill south of the city of Jerusalem, which is to this day called the Hill of Evil Council. And if you live on that hill and you get a postcard, it's going to say Hill of Evil Council. That's the name, of, and it's called that because that's where Judas went to make this deal with the Sanhedrin. Now, it's my favorite illustration to make the point that God has a sense of humor because today that hill is dominated by a building with a big flag and it's the UN flag and so on. So it makes sense to me. But uh, the Hill of Evil Council, uh, now here's my point. On Tuesday night, Judas goes and the, Sa the, the Sanhedrinists are frustrated. They want to kill Jesus, but they can't because he's so wildly popular. And so Judas on Tuesday night makes a bargain. There's a lot of confusion as to what Judas was hired to do. He was not hired to identify Jesus. That idea comes from the kiss. So people have the idea that the Sanhedrinists wanted to, mirror, uh, wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't pick him out of the lineup. Well, now, wait a minute. Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday on a donkey. There's no set of human features no familiar. Well, what's that kiss all about? Why does Judas say, the one whom I kiss, that's for the soldiers? But, but because the Roman soldiers, they needed to know which one was the supposed seditionist. On the other hand, the uh, uh, Sanhedrin, what was Judas hired to do? The Bible could not be more explicit. Luke 22 and verse 6 says that they gave him money and he agreed to help them arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. How many times did the Bible say that Jesus' enemies wanted to take him, but they could not because they feared the multitude? Jesus was wise as a serpent. He didn't let himself be in a situation where he wasn't surrounded by the masses. Now, that, that adoration of the masses is horribly self-serving and superficial. It's going to vanish by Friday morning, but uh, it, it, it ties the hands of Jesus' enemies. So on Tuesday night, 
Judas makes that deal. It's not just, I'll follow them around and look for a time. They know that the next time that Jesus is going to be in the absence of the multitude is at the Passover, which happens Thursday night. So everything is made ready, and on Thursday night, and Thursday on your sheet, I call a day of messianic preparation. It's twofold. Number one, in the upper room, Jesus prepares his disciples. Jesus takes, he keeps the place secret from Judas. They, they gather in the upper room on the western hill of Jerusalem. I can take you to that place, the airspace. And uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, they, they go there for the Passover. After the Passover is over, Jesus, alone with his disciples in that room, announces that the betrayer is at the table. Judas, it's interesting that when Jesus says that, the twelve begin to ask, who could it be? Who is it? And Judas, who is seated next to Jesus quite clearly, leans over to Jesus in Matthew 27 and says, Master, is it I? And Jesus says, it is. So now all pretense is gone. Judas knows that Jesus is entirely on to him. But now Judas makes an, escape, uh, makes an excuse, gets up, and goes to fetch the Sanhedrinists and the soldiers. Jesus begins to teach that marvelous teaching in the middle of it, John 14. Jesus says, verse 31, Arise, let us go hence. He knows that Judas is going to bring the soldiers back to the upper room. He wants some time. He takes them to Gethsemane, a private hobby farm. It's not a public garden, it's a hobby farm. It's an agricultural installation, but the person who owns it loves Jesus. He has access to it. Jesus goes there, and you have that marvelous, marvelous scene. And Oh, I should stop here, but let me just tell you this. I don't believe that you're going to get your arms around Golgotha unless you start with Gethsemane. Uh, what is on display in Gethsemane is absolutely breathtaking. And it, it, it is our best understanding of the horror that Jesus was about to face. Because he begs the Father, let this cup pass from me. Luke says that he sweat great drops of blood and that the Father sent angels. Folks, so much here. There's only one other time when the Father sends angels to care for Jesus. And that's after a 40-day fast. You see, I mentioned in the first hour that it's so important to take Jesus' humanity very seriously. And part of that, I think, is that Jesus never used his miracle work and power on his own behalf. I mean, he fasted for 40 days. What do you look like after a 40-day fast? You're at the very edge of death. This is, I'm talking about the temptation now in Luke 4, Matthew 4. But the point is, there was nobody there to help him. He would have died. And so the father sent angels. And I think those angels ministered to him for weeks and just gave him food and tried to make him comfortable, brought him back to some strength and so on. Well, now the only other time that the father sends angels is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And folks, it's not by reason of a 40-day fast that Jesus has driven to such physical extremities. It's by reason of the contemplation of what he's about to endure for you and me. And he says to his disciples, please pray for him, and my soul is heavy in me unto death. And it's very hard to depict the spiritual dynamics of the cross. And the best hint we have is that marvelous Gethsemane scene. But Jesus never stops there. He always goes on to say, not my will but thine be done. And then I don't know what those angels did. I picture them perhaps just reaching down and helping Jesus up off the ground and perhaps with angelic help, Jesus staggers from the garden 
As he does, here comes Judas and the soldiers, and Jesus is arrested. And that takes us to Friday, which is a day of messianic perfection on your sheet, and perfection because ultimately he is going to hang on a cross and cry out, it is finished, and the work is going to be perfected. But before the cross, there is a series of trials, and it's one of the most noble and, and, and intriguing scenes in all the Gospels, and that's what we're going to talk about after lunch today. I'm going to talk about Jesus on trial for his life. And then, of course, at 6 o'clock in the morning, John 19 and verse 14 is explicit. This is the sixth hour. Pilate turns, washes his hands, and Jesus is turned over to be crucified. He's taken. By 9 o'clock, he is on the cross. And again, we'll talk about that a little more this afternoon. It is, above all other uh, descriptions, I think it is, it is a day of messianic perfection. Because he does, in fact, finish the work of, of, of salvation on the cross. Oh, such a moment, obviously. And then he cries out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He gives up the ghost. Death is proven. We'll talk about the importance of this. And his body is laid in a tomb. And on Sunday morning, that tomb is found to be empty. And I call that a day of messianic pronouncement, primarily because I needed a P for heaven's sake. But the point is that, oh, I love this verse, Romans 1 and verse 4, that Jesus was declared. And the Greek word there is, here, let me, let me just say this. Jesus made throughout his life, throughout his ministry, I should say, the claim to be God come in the flesh. Might I just say, we've gotten too used to that. That kind of rolls off of our tongue. For a man to claim to be God is the most awful, bodacious heresy you could imagine unless it happens to be the truth. And it never had been the truth before. Jesus claimed to be God all throughout scriptures. Watch this now. The way God proves true a man's claim to be speaking for him is miracles. The greatest miracle in human history is when Jesus came alive from the dead. John 19, verse 7. After the Jewish leaders had exhausted every, every strategy they could think of to get Pilate to, 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 to crucify the Nazarene as a seditionist, and he refused, they finally said, well, if you won't crucify him under Roman law, then we have a law. And by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And now Paul says in Romans 4, 1, 4, and this is why I call it day, God is pronouncing true everything Jesus said. Because in Romans 1, 4, it says that Jesus was declared, and the word that Paul uses for declared there is our word horizon, horizo. And I think it's the picture of spreading it from east to west, from sky to the earth, it is spread across the sky so nobody can miss it. This is a message nobody can miss. Jesus was horizoned. He was declared. He was pronounced to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Everything Jesus ever claimed concerning what he had come to do and who he was was proven absolutely incontrovertibly true by the resurrection from the dead presentation the triumphal entry 
given Sunday, why Friday? Monday and Tuesday proclamation, you don't have it your way. You take me on my terms. Thursday preparation in the upper room with the disciples in the garden with, the, with, 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 with his father. Friday, he is arrested. You have a series of trials. He's on a cross. He cries out, it is finished, a day of messianic perfection. And then on the third day after, on Sunday morning, the tomb is found empty, and it's a day of messianic pronouncement as by means of the resurrection, God proves true all that Jesus said concerning himself. Father, thank you so much for this uh, remarkable drama, for the record that we have of it. We thank you for the life that Jesus lived. It was a life we never could live, and we thank you, Father, for the, the death that he died. It was an innocent death, but, Father, we thank you so much for the price that he paid in dying that death and for the life which is now ours if we simply entrust ourselves to that finished work. Praise your name, in the name of your Son. Amen.